0: Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. In this episode, Dr. Mayra Rivera talks to Dr. Mark Jordan about his book, Transforming Fire, Imagining Christian Teaching. This episode of Open Plaza Talks is part of the Theological Education Between the Time series, an initiative out of Candler School of Theology at Emory University. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. So welcome to the HTI Open Plaza podcast. My name is Mayra Rivera. I am the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of Religion and Latinx Studies at Harvard. And I have the absolute pleasure of being here today with Mark Jordan He is the Richard Reinhold Niebuhr Research Professor of Divinity at Harvard. And he's also a colleague and a dear friend. We have convened today to talk about his recent book, Transforming Fire, Imagining Christian Teaching. I told Mark I loved reading this book because it took me places I did not expect to go. So it's a pleasure to share our conversation with you today. Bienvenidos. So first question. One of the things that your book offers is a kind of iconoclasm in the sense that you do not talk about teaching in the way we're habituated to talking about teaching, as skills applied irrespective of discipline, or as a set of general ideas of how to foster particular types of engagements from students, or even as ways to accomplish what we call learning objectives. Uh, In fact, on the very first page, you say, we don't need books about teaching so much as books that teach. So you have a very different vision of learning in mind when centered about what you call scenes of instruction. So can you tell us about that vision?
1: Thank you, Maida. I- It's interesting because the the book was written very directly out of my experience as a teacher. In that sense, it was an easy book to write because it was a book that was coming out of decades of teaching. But at the same time, what that meant was that I was um, taking certain things for granted from my own teaching. One of them, I think, was what you've put your finger on. It's my conviction or or my perception, the way I perceive things, which makes it very difficult to separate uh, form from content. So whether we're talking about writing or talking about teaching or talking about artworks, I find this fusion between form and content, or I find the most powerful works are the works that bring about that fusion. And what that means for me is that in teaching, teaching is not a universal skill um, that we that you sort of learn and then you pour any content you want into the teaching. I think teaching varies tremendously. The style of teaching varies tremendously depending on what you're teaching, and and so for me, especially in theology, I think that there has to be not only a fusion between the content and the form, but a, a disruption of ordinary expectations that comes from both the content and the form. So I, I think from the first minute in a school of theology or in a classroom of theology, you ought to be thinking, wait, wait, what's going on here? What, what just happened? Why are we starting in this way?
0: And it it was part of the experience of reading the book to let go of some of those expectations and agree with you to follow you along the way. And that's my my sense of going where I did not expect to go. I,
1: I think that sense of agreement, if I could just draw a line under that, I think that it's really a form of trust Mm -hmm. And I think that act of trust is one of the most important and one of the riskiest moments of teaching. Mm -hmm. I think you do have to entrust yourself to a pedagogy.
0: That is so true. And, And the book itself, you build it as a kind of frame within a frame within a frame. We have the scenes of instruction in each of the texts that you examine with its own teacher and its own assumed students. And then there is the book itself in which you guide us into recognizing the importance of these scenes of instruction, the details of the scenes, um, understanding them in relation to other scenes, And in that context, in the context of the book, then you become the teacher and I'm the student, which which it helps because the book itself names the reader as she. So I could find myself quite comfortably there. But then there is what happens beyond the book. When I am inspired to teach about other scenes in other books or to stage other scenes in my teaching. So there's this complex traffic that you're tracing between the teaching and the text. So Can you guide us through that process from an old scene of instruction taking place in a public space or a convent or under a tree to text, to teaching and what, does that kind of movement from text to teaching in your own contemporary classroom entail beyond the assigning of of these texts?
1: I think that um, transmission of energy, uh, that's an odd uh, image, I guess, but I think that way in which we move from the description of an old scene of instruction, to the textual frame, to the way that that text is functioning in our present to the rest of our lives, that is teaching. I mean, that's what teaching depends on is that that kind of series of cascading effects that reach out. And and what strengthens me in that conviction is that some of the most powerful texts for me, some of the texts I love, seem to be very aware of that uh, way of reaching out uh, yes. So let me take the obvious example. If, if you think of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, say, um, well, we have the story about, the, uh, about Jesus's preaching, right? We have that story, and that's a, a scene of instruction that is uh, told as a particular place and time. He's standing on the mountain. He's saying these words. People are standing in boats and coming up. But then we have the text itself, which is telling the story. And that text can do certain things that the actual sermon couldn't do, right? So the text can arrange the verses with certain symmetries or build up certain rhythms that are probably not there in the original teaching. And then we have the relation of the text to the reader of the text. And the author or authors of Matthew seem to me very aware that what they're doing is committing this story to communal memory. They're passing this account of the event into a flow of memory that will go forward. So we're actually watching in ourselves this this transmission, the beginning of a tradition that passes a story down into the memory. And I take that what I do as a teacher, whether I'm teaching um, Matthew, or I'm teaching the Platonic Dialogues, or I'm uh, teaching Santa Teresa or whatever, what I'm trying to do is reactivate that transmission, right? So it becomes a living thing rather than just inert information passed down so that the student can actually begin to feel this this continuity of instruction, of shaping that's passing down. Uh, Yeah, that's my interest in scenes. Frankly, I also just love stories. So Mm. I I like texts that are written as stories.
0: And I love that phrase, reactivate the transmission, because it also entails doing something with it. Um, not simply repeating it.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I try to ask students without putting them on the spot too much, but if you're teaching a text that, um, say the famous uh, text of the life of St. Anthony, the first desert monk in the Western tradition. And there's a scene where he's in church and he hears uh, the gospel being read out. And it says, sell everything that you have and come follow me. And so he gets up and walks out of church into the desert because he's putting it into action. And I often say to the students, can you imagine yourself doing that? Like, Can you imagine yourself sitting in church and being so uh, moved by what you hear that you put it instantly into practice? And they look at me as if I'm crazy. And then I say, but, but that kind of possibility has to be present for you.
0: As I was reading the book, um, that kind of reactivation ha- led me in different directions, right? Other scenes of instruction came to mind. So when I'm reading Tillich and his idea of facing death, what com- came to mind was Edrich Danticat's mm. short story The Funeral Senior, which is a story that takes place around an English as a second language class for immigrants. And the question of death is discussed in that context. And, And at other points I thought about several of Gayatri Spivak's essays in which she teaches her readers by examining scenes of reading. So, and I was asking myself, so how did you choose the text that you included in the book? And were there other texts that you would have included if it were longer or a different context?
1: It's interesting, I, um, because that question sends me back, um, into the real perplexity I felt when I was choosing text um, because I had too many, at one point I was writing names on index cards and putting them on the table and the top of the table was covered with index cards. And I realized that I had to make, I had to have some principles for making a choice. So what I decided was first that I would only include uh, text that I had actually taught. So these are all texts that I had taught in class and. I actually began writing about them by going back to my teaching notes and trying to remember what had happened in class when I taught them. Uh, What were the difficulties or what were the discoveries? Another uh, principle that I adopted was obviously to get a good range uh, across time, across languages and cultures, across Christian traditions and so on. I think the ideal form of this book would would have all of the texts in their original languages. Because one of the things I was trying to get across was the sense of the multilingual character of Christian tradition. And and then the third and, and final thing, the final principle was to choose texts that I enjoyed teaching. Uh, It didn't, that doesn't mean I agreed with them always (laughs) or ever, but I wanted, because part of the, what the book is about is the joy that happens in classroom, Mm -hmm. the joy that happens in the encounter with these texts. And so I wanted to communicate some of my own um, joy. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, so other texts that were there. So that was partly accidental. There were some texts that are very close to me that I could have put in, um, like Thomas Aquinas or um, Marcella Althaus-Reed, um, uh, other texts of hers. Um, I could have, sometimes I thought it'd be interesting to do this with multiple texts by a smaller number of authors to show the range of authorial. Um, and I also thought a lot about including artistic works. I, I put, um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in there um, because, but, but that's really a text that's often taught theologically and, and used by families to raise their children and so on. But I thought about putting in other plays or poetry. And then I thought, no, I'm asking so much of the reader uh, to stretch in so many directions. I don't want to push, I don't want to push my luck. But I, I've come to believe, and I think this is important for theology in the present moment, that a book doesn't have to mention God or mention Jesus to be profoundly theological. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, given what's happened to Christian language, we might be better off with books that don't mention Mm -hmm. um, Jesus. It's interesting.
0: And are, are there types of scenes of instructions that you've encountered and said, this is something I would never teach, or this is something that, would, that I think would be destructive in its contemporary context.
1: Yeah, I think this question of, the, of destructive scenes of instruction of which scenes are destructive and why is like the most important pedagogical question because I think each student and each teacher has to examine a scene to ask whether it's destructive or constructive. And if the answer is it's destructive, then you need to get out as quickly as possible because a great deal of damage can be done by manipulative scenes of instruction or damaging scenes of instruction. So there's some scenes that I wouldn't teach, not because I'm not because I think they're damaging to everyone, but because they're damaging to me. So a lot of the texts in what is counted kind of old-fashioned dogmatic theology or hyper-systematic theology, I find these texts punishing and cruel, and I don't want to teach them. Um, Somebody else, I I want to repeat, somebody else could teach them well, uh, but I can't. And then there are texts that just seem to me to be either either filled with hatred and rage or trying to do something harmful to the reader, sometimes underneath smiles and sweetness. They're trying to do something harmful. I won't name any examples there, but I think that's what we have to watch for, right? because, and this is the old platonic question about what makes rhetoric good and what makes rhetoric bad. Bad rhetoric, rhetoric that's bad for you or bad for a community will often seem like the sweetest rhetoric at the very beginning, right? It, it sometimes seems like exactly what you want. And that's when you have to be careful because in fact that sweetness is being used to lure you in. Mm-hmm. There's also a personal toll, isn't there? I'm thinking about when I've been reading texts that, like strongly homophobic texts,
0: mm-hmm.
1: when I was writing about them. I, I mean, it's not that I thought that they were right or correct or true. It's not that they led me to doubt certain conclusions I'd come to. But I just found that it was toxic reading mm-hmm. them. I, it would wear me down after a mm-hmm. while. And I, I, so I had to be very careful of how much I read mm-hmm. in any given sitting.
0: Mm-hmm. And it it relates to what you were saying about how the, the transmission of texts is not a passive thing and that there's, there's a lot of energy uh, that goes into the reading and from the reading I wanted to ask you about place. I I loved your descriptions of lecture halls here and there in the book and I was asking myself whether physical space is is an element in a scene of instruction and and perhaps I'm thinking about that because we're teaching virtually so much or have been teaching virtually. So, so both in normal times would place setting, uh, have a role in thinking about scenes of instruction and has that thinking um, changed during the pandemic in using virtual teaching.
1: So as as you know, I'm fascinated by the play of imaginary spaces and real spaces. So I'm really interested in the way texts uh, create imaginary spaces. And sometimes they do it by describing a place in great detail in which the action is happening and at other times they imagine these fantastic spaces that occur, these visionary spaces that occur like all the landscapes in um, Pilgrim's Progress uh, or Dante, all the levels of the, the celestial realms that Dante travels through, but also um, more stranger spaces. Like with Bonaventure's journey, uh, Mind's Road to God, I'm, I'm not sure how much we're supposed to visualize the hierarchies that he's describing. So you can imagine him kind of projecting these, ge- these shining geometric hierarchies with all these complex connections amid them. Um, I get the same sense in other mystical writers of visionary landscapes being projected. But then sometimes, I yeah, I think they're implicit physical spaces. In the, in the text. Uh, Bonaventure, again, is, a, is an example because in the itinerarium, he's using medieval classroom techniques to expand his, uh, his hierarchies. And I don't know if we're supposed to hear through that the space of a chapel in which he's talking or the space of an aula uh, classroom at the University of Paris. Um, And I think it's worth thinking about that because I think the more we can do to bring our consciousness to what's happening in a classroom um, and to the way in which the classroom might be restricting or inhibiting our class, that's very important. So every time that we go into a classroom and move the chairs, that's an interesting moment because we're saying the space actually matters a lot. And I've never found any, I mean, I'm always glad to teach, you know, in, in a ritzy uh, air conditioned classroom, but I've never found any correlation between the, the luxury of the classroom or the sumptuousness of the classroom and the reality of the teaching. As, as you know, one of the most important physical classrooms for me was the classroom in a small fishing village in Mexico where I learned how to read. And um, this was the first grade classroom. It was the largest classroom because until you could pass the test at the end of the first year, you couldn't leave. So <laughs> it was a huge classroom and it was uh, ordered by age. So the youngest in front and the oldest in pack. Um, and the remarkable young woman, the teacher, managed to make it work. The Plaster was falling off the adobe walls, water was running, there were dogs and chickens coming in and out. And, and we learned, and we learned because she projected this energy of attention and interest um, that made it possible to learn. So yes, I think we can learn You know, in cow sheds and under trees and uh, in the shade of a boat turned up at the edge of a lake uh, Yeah, and maybe if we remembered that more, I don't want to say this too loudly in case administrators hear this, but maybe if we remembered this more, uh, we wouldn't be so hung up on buildings. Um, Yeah.
0: That's interesting. While you're talking about this room uh, where you learned I get all these memories of talking to my father and his brother and them describing the places where they learned in Puerto Rico before there were like buildings dedicated to schools where people volunteered their homes and they the vivid memories they have of exactly how you had to travel to go to this particular place and what it looked like, what it sounded like uh, and the people around it. it I, I wonder if there's something about that stimulation of the of the place, right? A non-standardized place that might uh, spark some of these senses into participating. In the learning experience. And I think related to that, I, I wanted to ask you about the role of students because students have learned particular ways of how they're supposed to learn and I was wondering in what you think needs to change about what students assume about what's about to happen in a classroom—that's
1: mm, a—that's a good and and really hard question. Um, partly because the students who come through the doors into the classroom are so different; they have such different backgrounds, and uh, I think it's just beyond foolish to assume that there's a kind of standard student with a standard background and you can teach to that. Uh, no, it's it's all different and becoming more and more different as as our schools become more diverse, which is a wonderful thing. But I let me let me flip it around and make it more particular in this way. I mean, I'm aware that when students come into my classroom, they're encountering a pedagogy that they may not have encountered before because they want me to, um, to play the expert. They want me to give them um, information or results or rules that they can memorize and learn and then give back to me and then, and then I approve them. And what I keep saying to them is, no, no, really, you have to do this for yourself. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give you some samples of my reading. I'm gonna raise some questions that I'm not gonna answer. I'm gonna give you some writing exercises that are gonna shake you up a little bit. And, and some students I know find the first two or three weeks of the course baffling. And when they come into my office to say that, um, what I say is, is just give it a little more time and let's see if it works out. And usually it does, but sometimes it doesn't. And then I say, what we've discovered here is that I'm not a good teacher for you, uh, right? And let's let's try to find you a better teacher. Let's find you another teacher and see if that teacher will be better. Because I really believe that not, that I, I believe that I can't be a good teacher for everyone, because teaching is too personal, too incarnational, too idiosyncratic, Um, I teach who I am, I teach within my limits. So if a student says, it's just not working for me, I'm perfectly willing to say, I hear you, I believe you, Uh, let's try to sort that out. And so I guess what I'm saying is, I only ask students to step so far into my pedagogy And if it feels to them like a violation or like an ongoing strain or a contradiction, then I encourage them with my help to get out and find somebody else. I'm happy to say that, at least according to what people tell me, which isn't always everything, that the pedagogy seems to work about four times out of five, uh, at least work well enough but as teachers i think we have to admit our limits we have to admit our particularities and and stop there
0: and related to to this question of the person who teaches i was thinking about the seams of instruction that you describe or read for us and was imagining this short Latina with an accent entering the scene and the roles that students expect from this Latina and I I was thinking about that because I've had to put some work in trying to understand what I represent in different classrooms, in different institutions, even before I say anything. Um, so So I wonder what you would say about that and how do you think about your own Positionality and those scripts in the scenes of instruction that you don't get to write or stage.
1: Right, right. Um, I'm thinking two things. The first is I'm remembering uh, Marcella Althaus Reed complaining about the expectations that were put on her because people would hear that she was a Latin American liberation theology uh, specialist. And that meant certain things, certain expectations. So when she would come in and and be talking about avant-garde French literature, she wasn't supposed to do that. She was supposed to be a liberation theologian. And and she had to crack those expectations, I think. And even then often she wasn't heard. Um, But you're right, I have in some sense, the blessing and the curse of conforming more to certain societal expectations, at least in New England. Um, and, you know, so when I walk in and I'm I'm white and um, I'm close enough to passing a straight and and people assume I'm cisgendered and I'm wearing a Brooks Brothers shirt, well, then you know that's that fits the model. That's it. Um, but what I try to do in those situations is to complicate the model a little bit. Um, for example, in the undergraduate sexual ethics class, I on the first day, after talking a little bit about the course, I would say, you might be asking yourself why they've sent an old white man to teach you about sex. It seems a little odd. And, and everyone would laugh kindly. And then I would say, now, wait, let's examine this. Because in fact, there's a long history of old white men coming into classrooms telling other people how to behave sexually. So let's examine this scene. And it seems to me whatever we can do to bring attention to our particularities and to the expectations that they have, uh, because I would love, I would put up old pictures of, you know, coach giving a sexual education lecture. He was always a white man of about my age with a whistle around his neck, you know, and he was, giving lessons on family values and um, you know, reproductive health and no sex before marriage and all of that. And then I would stop them and I would say, look, one thing that's interesting about this class is that I'm an out gay man and I'm being asked to teach you sexual ethics. <laughs> we should think about that too. That is, we should think about the expectations and how they're being subverted in the times in, yeah. in which we live. That's helpful.
0: Do you see any clear changes in your teaching from where you when you started teaching to now? Oh, yeah. Um, I
1: guess the simplest way to say it is is I'm a lot um, freer. Mm -hmm. than I was when I was a younger teacher. I often think about this exhibit of calligraphy I saw, of Chinese calligraphy, I saw in a museum. And it was a national competition from China arranged by age. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the early examples were very precise. Every line was drawn carefully. Everything was just perfect. And then as you moved forward through the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, things began to loosen up. And by the time you got to the old masters, it looked just like a blur. Right? Just, And I think teaching can be like that, too. That, I mean, I'm willing to take risks now that I wouldn't take before. Mm-hmm. And if something happens in class, if we hit a really hard point, I'm willing to set aside the plan I had for the day and just to talk, talk about the hard point. If we need to talk more about sexual violence and how hard it is to get down to the root truths of that painful event, then let's do it. Let's mm-hmm. do it. And we'll catch up some other time. We'll, we'll do something else to make it work. Uh, and, and for me also, there's been just a tremendous change in my Range. I always taught across a number of different topics because that was the way I was taught in college, but I've tried even to expand that further and not to be afraid about people saying, you can't do this, it's not your field, uh, and just say, no, no, we're following the questions wherever they lead us.
0: Can you give us some examples of that, of teaching things that might seem out there, or distant from theology?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, in the class that I was teaching um, called God and Modern Writing, which was about the impact of, of modernity, of modern art and modern literature on theological writing. Um, so uh, Kierkegaard, uh, Nietzsche, uh, the young Bart, I, I guess those would be okay. Uh, and then uh, T.S. Eliot, right, The Wasteland, and Juno um, Barnes, Nightwood, um, and we looked at some of Juno Barnes's drawings, and Borges we read, right, from The Labyrinths. And I, I, I felt the energy in those classes. It seems to me it's the energy of people who are taking delight in these texts but also people who are no longer feeling constrained by the artificial borders.
0: I wanted to talk about writing a little bit. It's a topic we've been talking about uh, for a long time. So to start us with, can you tell us about the process of writing this book? how you came to decide you wanted to write it and what the process itself was like.
1: So the book in some ways, it came out of of an external invitation or external incitation. Um, So it's part of a series of uh, project, theological education between the times and The last stage of the project was for 12 of us to agree to write books. Um, And Ted Smith uh, gave us a wonderful and frightening freedom in the choice of the books. There was no uh, grand master plan for topics. There was no template for the individual volumes. We were encouraged to write about things that mattered to us and to write uh, from our hearts, which I did. I knew more or less from the beginning that I was gonna write about teaching because for me, teaching remains the central uh, gift and central mystery of theological education. I also believe it tends to be neglected in our discussions of the future of theological education. We always end up talking about endowments and institutions, um, but without teaching, there's, there is no theological education. Uh, so that was the topic. Um, I knew it was gonna be teaching. I knew I had to talk about my own teaching. I think I can only talk about teaching or writing concretely. That is uh, abstract generalizations about teaching are incredibly boring, like abstract generalizations about writing. So so I think that if I put those together, they kind of yielded the book. It was gonna have to come directly out of my teaching. It was gonna have to be specific. Oh, well then I'm gonna talk about how I actually teach individual books Here it is.
0: And it is a beautiful book. It is short, but it took me longer than I expected to read it through. And it wasn't because it was difficult in the sense of words or complicated structure. None of that. It was clearly written and structured, even though I don't know that clear is necessarily the right word for it. But it led me into a kind of meditative journey. And after that is, after I accepted that it was not the book I thought I was gonna read and consenting to being guided by the book. So was the pacing part of your design, part of something you wanted to demonstrate by writing, demonstrate a particular pedagogical sequence? or And was it influenced by one of the figures that you discussed in the book or somebody else?
1: i've been I've been thinking a lot, um, I was thinking a lot when I was writing the book about about time, the time we create in our writing or in our classrooms. <clears throat> How much time do we think it takes to understand this book that we're talking about? How much time do I create in a text for a reader to absorb what's happening? Um, so yes, I was trying to I was trying to slow the pace, uh, make it a slow walking pace uh, to allow the reader to think about these things, not just think about what I was saying, but think about the examples I was using and the questions I was raising. And I only realized afterwards that I I was in some way imitating a number of the texts I was talking about because So many of the texts that I discuss use the the pacing of a road, of a walking journey. So uh, for Marcella, it's the tabinata. Uh, It's the great walking of liberation itself. Uh, For Teresa, it's the path through the castle. For Octavia Butler, it's the path north, uh, out of Los Angeles, out of slavery into freedom. And so I, in that sense, I which is picking up on the, the deep image of the road, the, the road you walk, the road to Jerusalem, which is where Bonaventure ends. Um, but I didn't realize that until after it was finished, that I had been imitating that walking. But, but I just want to underscore the importance of what you're asking, because I don't think that we pay enough attention to the question of time. We assume that all texts somehow can be rushed through Uh, But they can. They don't work when you rush through them. They just become a garble.
0: And it is a kind of habit of the productivity mindset to try to read fast. But then at the end, it's a gift to read a book that guides you to slow down, even if it's implicitly. And why did you choose Transforming Fire for its title? So what's what's the origin of the phrase and why did you choose it for the title of the book?
1: Well, I was thinking about uh, original scenes of teaching and I had talked obviously about the scenes of Jesus teaching, but I thought there's this other scene at Pentecost of teaching Mm -hmm. that happens uh, with the flames dancing over the heads Mm -hmm. of all these people speaking different languages, speaking the message in different languages. And I thought that too has got to be part of our expectation or inheritance Mm -hmm. of Christian teaching. So the transforming fire is in some way the tongues of fire at Pentecost. But I was also thinking of that, the phrase, uh, we know it in English Uh, through the King James version as the refiner's fire Mm -hmm. in Isaiah. And I was thinking that teaching is um, handling fire. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a fire that changes you uh, as a teacher and that changes your students. If you're not careful, it can scorch you. Mm -hmm. It's very hot and powerful, Um, but if you use it right, if you're careful with it, if you're attentive, then you can produce gold you can you can yield something extraordinarily beautiful. I do want to emphasize that sense of risk and maybe link it back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of damaging or destructive scenes, because I think religious texts, any religious text worth reading is innately powerful. Mm-hmm. And that power can be misused.
0: Mm-hmm. So let me, let me ask you about theology, that big term. In, in the book, you invite us to consider moving beyond received forms for theological writing. And I agree, as you know. But I am also aware that breaking the standard forms leaves me open to being accused of not doing theology really. And you beautifully described in the book, the compromises that theology has made to fit the university. And I wanted to invite you to talk about the power dynamics internal to calling something theology or not calling something theology.
1: I think those power dynamics vary tremendously by location. Um, so in the same way, in, in a university it matters a great deal whether you're talking about um, adjunct professors or untenured assistant professors or full professors because there are different power dynamics that are at work. I mean, there's power at every level but it operates differently. Um, but I think, yes, when you add theology and then you add another level of power. And I've tried to distinguish in my own thinking between the kind of coercive power that can be exercised by churches, which is quite real. Uh, In some some schools, it means you can lose your job if you uh, deviate from the doctrine. If if you're a student studying for ordination, it means you can be um, denied ordination for Doctrinal deviation. So there's that that kind of coercive structure, but there's also a power dynamic that's intrinsic to to speaking about God, at least for me, in the sense that I don't want to get it wrong, right? I don't, I don't want to mislead myself or mislead other people um, by by saying something that's really harmful in, in trying to talk about God. And since I'm mainly I'm I'm mainly free of university structures and mainly free of church structures, I guess I worry most about that last that last sense of the power uh, or the last sense of responsibility to the topic. Um, but I want to say that I've spent I I have spent willingly and gladly a great deal of my time. Uh, picking people up when they've been knocked over by church power. And I, and I never want to underestimate that power. Uh, it's still very active. It hasn't gone away. Uh, it operates in a lot of people's lives. It does a great deal of damage. So I think we need more, if I can use the old word, solidarity, <laughs> helping each other, to build communities that resist the intrusions of that coercive power. In that sense, I think we need to make our own audiences for theology.
0: You say in in the book that your theology lookalikes are literatures. <laughs> Can you say more about that? I love it.
1: I find if I'm reading, if I'm looking to read theology just for the pleasure of reading theology, then I usually end up reading novels or poetry because I find in them a more artful and precise description of divine realities than I do in much academic writing. Um, So I just learn better from them than I do from many of um, the works uh, I read in university settings. I include my own works in that, by the way. I I would rather read poetry or Novels and read Mark Jordan. So
0: there's a lot of poetry in Mark Jordan. <laughs> <place. laughs> you don't do not always teach theology. I think. Uh, so can you talk about the relationship between the different fields that you teach in?
1: You know, I've been puzzling about that because I think me the work seems somehow unitary or integral, uh, although I'm aware, of course, that I teach differently when I move from field to field, but I do have this sense that I'm following the same questions. There are questions about how finite languages, which is to say all human languages, can carry more than human messages or can can shape with more than human energy, um, so I may I may in fact be guilty of blurring disciplinary boundaries in ways that I'm not aware of. If I'm teaching Nietzsche, I'm aware that I'm not teaching an explicitly Christian text, and that I don't want to impose all sorts of other understandings on that. On the other hand, I consider Nietzsche one of the most powerful writers on theology in the 19th century, so he's clearly engaged with theology, if only to critique it. Uh, And I guess I I try to lift up those parts of him. And Foucault is another and much more difficult question.
0: (laughs) Well, Mark, thank you so much. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been great talking about, uh, about, Mark Jordan's Transforming Fire, Imagining Christian Teaching. Thank you very much for listening.
1: This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.